All right, we're in installment number two, the soils. So Jesus has been teaching. He has um, been affirmed by heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He has come teaching and healing. He's doing incredible work. He's giving incredible words. He's doing incredible work. And the crowds are following, massive crowds. And he gives this critical foundational kingdom instruction that I want to apply to you and to us and to those that are in our network of relationships. He's going to talk about who's in the crowd. He's going to talk about the multitudes and the response to the seed of the gospel, the word of God. And he's going to explain how people respond and why they respond that way. So the disciples are going to be commissioned with the gospel. Dan just prayed it, that we would be aware you're salt and light. You're a gospel witness. You're to go into all the world and communicate the good news that saves. Salvation in Jesus Christ alone. God loving us, sending his son to substitute for us, providing a righteousness we can't earn, providing forgiveness and release we cannot secure through the gift of his grace and the wonder of his life, and it changes us. And we're the antidote to sin and destruction. And so people will be affected by the message we proclaim as disciples of Jesus Christ. How will they respond? And Jesus is explaining the possible responses, the categorical responses of people. And then by virtue of his explanation, the contribution or the factors that contribute to those responses. So I started last week asking you a question. And that question involves taking an honest look at your heart. Because the characteristic of this parable understands that many will come, many will follow, many will profess, but all will not be saved. And so the fundamental message that Jesus wants his disciples to know in the parable of the soils, and a parable is a teaching tool of comparing something known to something that you needed to know. This is Jesus Christ telling an earthly story to communicate a heavenly kingdom truth. And this is the parable of the soils. Not the sower, not the seed. The focus of this parable is the soil and the response of people to the words of the good news that saves. And the fundamental bottom line, I'm going to give it to you at the beginning. The whole point of this is to help his disciples know that many will hear. Many will hear, but few will truly believe. Some will make claims, but they will not last because it is not a legitimate transaction or transformation. Those who truly believe, and this is critical as well, they will have an explosive, amazing impact. That's the bottom line. It is meant to educate the disciples. This is how it is, the mystery of the kingdom, and is meant to encourage them as to why people respond in the ways that they respond. The seed is the word of the kingdom, The sower is the son of man and all agents who disseminate as his ambassadors the seed that saves, the good news of the word of God. Jesus did not target the truth. 
The sower doesn't target the truth. And the seed doesn't change. The truth doesn't change. It's not morphed or accommodated or adapted according to the audience. The seed is the same. The sower broadcasts the seed lavishly and generously. The critical factor is the soil of the soul. So my question to you was, will you take an honest look at your heart? Some of you profess Christ. Some of those who you uh, work with or are in the home with, members of your family, profess Christ. And the question that needs to be asked is who would validate whether they are a Christian or whether you are a Christian? Who told you? And hopefully this passage will give you confidence that you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. So I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to highlight we're talking about four kinds of soil, four kinds of responses to the words of the gospel, the seed of God's word. Chapter 4, verse 1, he, Jesus, began to teach again. By the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him, verse 1, Mark 4, such a large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. In Matthew's gospel, parallel passage, Matthew 13, worth noting, they were standing. And I'm going to argue that so compelling was the message and the messenger, they were interested. They were willing to stand. And he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching, here's a key statement, listen to this. this is, you've got to pay attention to this. Don't miss this. This is foundational. Here it is. Behold the first parable, the first earthly story to communicate a heavenly truth. The sower went out to sow, and as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. A third kind of seed, or third kind of soil, other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. Notice verse 9, and he was saying, started out by saying, listen to this. He finishes by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Hey, pay attention to this. Listen up. Now that I've told you, use your ears to wrestle with the realities of what I've taught. Let him hear. Let him understand is the force of that. And verse 10 says, as soon as he was alone, his followers, that would be the disciples, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. Understanding the nature of the kingdom has been granted you by the Spirit of God, through the words of God, but those who are on the outside get everything in parables. So they're handicapped by their heart soil because of their inability to understand divine truth. And that's a fulfillment, verse 12 of Old Testament prophecy, so that while seeing they may see and not perceive, while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they may return and be forgiven. 
And we'll come back to that. I know that bothers you. But I want to continue with the explanation. Verse 13, and he said to them, do you not understand this parable? This is key to understand as well. How will you understand all the parables? Which is to say, if you don't get this one, how are you going to get the rest of them? This is foundational and critical. That's the force of verse 13. Now the explanation. He's done the description, the parable. Now he's going to explain it so that they can understand it, and hopefully we will understand it and be benefited by it. Verse 14, the sower sows the word. So in Matthew's gospel, the sower is the son of God and those who represent the son of God. And they're sowing the word. That's the seed. These are the ones who are beside the road. So first kind of soil, verse 15, these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. All right, so the question to ask is what kind of a heart does a person have? Heart option number one Option number one is a hard and impenetrable heart, a beside-the-road heart. And as I, we began to investigate this last week, this hard soil, according to historians, had to do with the little grass paths, the rights of way by the field, which had been beaten as hard as stone by the feet of those who used them. So this parable has to do with the scattering of seed, the good news that saves, and it falls on soil that's so hard it has no opportunity to root and germinate. The first heart is like hard-packed soil beside the road. So hard that no seed penetrates it, the word of the truth is spoken, its potential is lost, And it is vulnerable, now don't miss this, it is vulnerable and stolen by Satan because it can't really get into the heart. The heart is hard. And the truth and the benefit of that truth is lost. Lost. No growth is possible because the seed of change is gone. What kind of seed of change? What is the good fruit? What is the good crop? It's forgiveness. It's freedom. It's release and liberation of self and selfishness. It's abundant life. They have no love. They have no joy. They have no peace. They have no power. They bear no fruit because the seed can't get in because their heart is hard. So the first potential reaction to the truth of Jesus Christ is no response. The supernatural capacity of the seed, and it has supernatural capacity, born again, Peter said, by the seed, the imperishable seed of the Word of God, it has power to effect transformational and eternal change, but it bears no fruit, not because it lacks power, but because of the quality of the soil. It's not a problem with the Word of God. It's not a problem with the sower who sowed it. The issue is the soil of the heart. Because the heart is not receptive, it's too hard to receive the seed and realize its extraordinary potential. So we started last week to unpack why is it hard. And I argued there are four potential reasons, prompters to the hardness, if you will. You want to know why people are indifferent to the Word of God or 
why they're hard to it, I gave you four words. Number one, indifference. Number two, ignorance. Number three, grievance. And number four, bad influence. And we talked and spent a good bit of time last week. Promoters of hardness, number one, is the hardness of indifference. It's the disinterested heart. Let me say it this way. The the heart is hard because it doesn't have any need for the gospel. These are the people that are not aware of the unmet and deepest heart needs they have. They're satisfied with the world's thirst quenchers. I don't need God. I'm not, I think it's good for you. I don't need it. They are focused on temporal pleasures, achievements, accomplishments, relationships, and possessions. They don't have an appetite for the richer, life-giving things. I argued that they are these appetites that are in them and their humanity have been muted by what I'm going to call life Twinkies. You know, you spoil your appetite for the rich food because you're tasting of superficial food. They hear the words, but they do not need them. They're indifferent to the word because they don't really feel like they need it. The drumbeat of the culture and the indifference of their heart has put them in a position where I'm going to argue they just settle. This is, I'm good. Thank you very much. Don't need it. Not hungry for it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Do you know what the poor are? By way of definition, desperate. They're hungry. They know they need help. They have an appetite because of their need and their desperation and their recognition that they're helpless. They're interested in change. Maybe it's the hardness of indifference. Number two, turn with me to Matthew 13, hardness of ignorance. The hardness of ignorance. The second reason I would suggest for a hard heart is because of the hardness created by ignorance. I'm going to call this the unplowed heart. Matthew 13, verse 19, begins Jesus' explanation, parallel passage in Mark's gospel, verse 18. Here then the parable of the sower, Matthew 13. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. Did you see that? Does not understand it. They don't get it. I'm going to call this the unplowed heart. It's hard because it's unplowed, like the soil by the road, unplowed, unprepared. They don't understand it because they've never taken the time to prepare the soil of their heart, or no one has taken the time to do that for them. They are ignorant of the things of God, and though they hear it, they don't get it. They have never been taught spiritual things, nor have they truly sought spiritual things. I believe they're hard because their heart's not plowed. They're not doing the preparation personally, or they don't have people in their life, potentially people like us, that are plowing, communicating, challenging perspectives. So they never sought it, or they've never been taught it, they're ignorant of it. And you'd be shocked 
If you take a poll, you just walk, maybe you wouldn't be shocked. I live in a very kind of Christianized world, and I'm still shocked at what Christians don't understand about the true gospel, let alone walk through your neighborhood or go to the club or whatever. I don't mean the nightclub. Hopefully you're not there, but car club, uh, train club, that kind of club, book club. When you traffic with people in our culture, they don't get it. It's alien to them. You know, the, the, the common idea, I'm doing the best I can. I'm trying to be better than Bob. And somehow, if I'm good to everyone, if I try hard, if I don't hurt anybody, I don't murder anybody, I, I got a shot. I hope to make it. Listen, 24 out of 25 millennials do not have a biblical worldview. They are synchronist. Synchronists are those who kind of borrow bits and pieces from here, there, and everywhere, and they integrate a worldview that's not a biblical worldview. 56% say moral truth is subjective. Morality is defined by me. That's just not true. That's ignorance speaking out. I don't mean ignorance ugly. Ignorance is gnosis, knowledge, with a big X over it. I just don't know. It's not you're stupid. You don't know. So there's hardness of heart, Jesus says, verse 19, because they do not understand it. They don't get it. Thirdly, I want to use the word grievance. Third prompter to hardness. I would suggest for a hard heart, it's because of the hardness of injury. I call this kind of heart the trampled heart. A heart beat down from life's journey, its disappointments, its violations, and its pain. Listen to Luke 8, verse 5. Parallel passage, Luke's statement. The sower went out to sow a seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road. Now listen to this. And it was trampled under foot. This is the heart that has been used and walked on. It has grown cold, cynical, and calloused. Because of the hurt, pain, and disappointment, it is covered with a hard layer of self-protection, guarding it from further abuse or unfulfilled promise. They are protected from present pain, but vulnerable to eternal loss. Here's the way I would put it. They hear it, the seed of the word, but they can't risk it. I uh, watched the streaming version of The Jesus Revolution, the recent Christian film about Greg Laurie and Chuck Smith. And Karen and I watched it because I met Chuck Smith years ago in the 80s down at Calvary Chapel. I was out here in Los Angeles doing inner city ministry. And I just wanted to see, because I had heard the nature of that ministry and he was speaking and I got to meet him and talk with him. And I know Greg Laurie. So I was just interested in how the story would be told. And there were things I didn't know. A lot of things I didn't know. But one of the things that stood out to me was the obstacle that was represented in Greg Laurie's challenge 
to receive the gospel and its full benefit. He grew up in a home where his father had left. His mother was a mess. And the film very clearly communicates that the hindrance to his receiving and believing, repenting, confessing, and accepting, was his struggle to trust anyone or anything to endure. That the injury of his home, the dysfunction of his mother, the loss of relationships, one of the themes in the film and in his testimony is everybody leaves. You can understand that the journey of life can be a hard one, and some of the hardness is the result of injury, and that grievance and that injury can callous and insulate you from feeling anything in a hope to protect yourself from greater injury. Trampled underfoot walked on, taken advantage of. In my ministry life experience, stuff happens. And people can believe that the gospel is just like everything else. And those who proclaim it are like everyone they've known. Can't count on them. They're not what they profess to be. The love that is promised will not endure. I hear it but I'm not willing to risk it. There's a fourth category. The fourth and final reason I would suggest for a hard heart is because of the hardness of bad influence. I call this kind of heart the poisoned heart. These are the ones who have been trampled by those who walk the hard path, polluted by those who are not in the field but around its edges. I mean the false teachers, I mean the hypocritical professors, I mean the deniers, the pretenders, the misleaders, the distorters. I'm talking about the bad influences that surround the reality of God's people and God's kingdom. And they are poisoned by the toxin of those lies. I was looking at Amazon recently, and they were highlighting some of the theologically popular books. And one of them on Amazon, and you don't want to buy it, but it's it's, it's 2021. There's no hell according to the Bible. It's like a bestseller. Well, of course it's a bestseller. If I didn't know Jesus, I wouldn't want there to be a hell. But the argument is, and there is no biblical argument made, which is what critics see if you read portions of the book, which I haven't, because I'm not interested in that particular uh, claim, because I don't know how you would make it. But it's like Rob Bell in his famous book, Love Wins. At the heart of life's big questions, Bell argues that it's a universal God of love who's going to fix it for everybody, nobody is separated from God forever. God sends no one to hell. There are people who promote that winsomely, powerfully, popularly. That's who I'm talking about. The people that poison perspectives. You can go to Christian universities, which I think is the most dangerous territory. It's one thing to go to a secular institution where you know you're not on friendly soil. 
But when you show up and they talk about God and Jesus Christ and they talk about the Bible, but in the very first class you have, they tell you what portions of the Bible you can't trust. They tell you that Genesis isn't what it seems to be or that the teachings of Jesus are disconnected from the Old Testament where God was angry, hard, and difficult. And you have people who are scholarly and influential and verbally capable. They influence the heart. And then you have people like me, people like us, who are loud professors of the gospel, and periodically we get unmasked as hypocrites. We're saying one thing, and we're doing another thing, and people see that, and they have no interest. Their heart's hardened by the layers of lies or layers of cynicism, and it's, I think, fertilized this soil this, by, manures, uh, by the manure of hypocritical behavior. It's just not going to grow. So let me summarize. The, best, the first option is the hard heart. That's one of the ways you can re- fail to respond, one of the ways the soils and the, that which indicates the multitude and how they respond to it, there's no response because they don't need it. They don't get it, they don't want it, they can't risk it, or they don't believe it. And the tragic and wrenching reality is they are lost for eternity. The hardness allows the... And I want you to note this as you see it in Mark's gospel, this explanation. Don't miss it because it talks about another factor. The birds that come and steal the soil, Satan represented by the symbol of those birds, comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. Listen to Luke. This is Luke chapter 8, verse 12. And those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart. Now listen to this. So that they may not believe and so that they may not be saved. I want you to notice a word in verse 15. They hear, and immediately Satan comes and takes away the word. Don't miss immediately. The hard-hearted may loiter. Satan does not loiter. I'm going to argue the opportunity is short. Your heart is hard because of indifference. I don't need God. Your heart is hard because you don't get it and don't care to get it. Your heart is hard because you've been injured by somebody or something. Your heart is hard because you've been influenced by somebody who's poisoned the potential of the soil of your heart. Don't loiter. Don't let that hardness, there are many exist, continue You're at vulnerable of great risk. And Mark says birds. Birds. That implies variety. Lots of birds. Spurgeon wrote black crows, white doves, great fowls, or little sparrows. Aggressively looking for the seed that the sower has sown. I was down at Laguna Beach at a retreat back in the spring and I was looking out over the ocean from the restaurant at the hotel, and I was by myself, and I bought the American breakfast, and I have this panoramic view, and the lady comes out, and she brings my 
American breakfast, and I'd describe it, except I don't want to entice you to find food afterwards, but it, it was a good breakfast, and English muffins, in addition to the eggs that were done just right, the, uh, the bacon that was crispy, as it should be, and the blackberry jam she said was to die for. Are you with me? Okay. So, so I have a pattern. I'm going to eat certain portions at a particular time, and I save the, the muffin, which I butter heavy, and I put the blackberry jam, and it's sitting right there awaiting its sequence. Do you know what that gal failed to tell me? Do you know what seagulls do at Laguna Beach? I mean, man, I blinked, and the seagull came, swooped down, grabbed my muffin, and gone. When she came back out, I described, she said, oh, I should have told you. I said, yes, you should have told me. (laughs) Sir, I'll bring you another muffin. And then I protected it. (laughs) Now listen, I know you're laughing. But it's one thing to lose a muffin. It's a whole other thing to lose the antidote to everything. And the hard-hearted are at risk. They're at risk because the enemy is a vulture who is going to steal the seed of change. Jesus said, that's how it is. And you're living with people like that. You're working with people like that. You may be vulnerable like a person like that. You come to this church, you hear God's word, you hear the seed, but for some reason you're negotiating it or you're giving yourself time to really accept it. All right, let me continue. Option number two. So indifference, ignorance, injury, and bad influence. That fits under the hardness category of missed opportunity and stolen possibility. Option two, the shallow and superficial heart. This is the rocky ground. All right, notice the explanation in verse 16. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places. Now, let me tell you what rocky place doesn't mean, because it would imply. It's like the beach at Carpinteria, where you got all those little pebbles and, and boulders. It's not talking about a field full of rocks. Let me, let me explain by an historian who unpacks this. This was not a ground, this was not ground full of stones. It was a narrow skin of earth over a shelf of limestone rock. So this is a thin layer of soil on a plateau or shelf of rock. Much of Galilee was like that. In many fields, the outcrop of the rock through the shallow soil could be seen. Seed which fell there germinated all right, but because the soil was so shallow and held so little nourishment and moisture, the heat of the sun soon withered the sprouting seed and it died, which is why you read, they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy, shallow soil, shallow heart. They have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, in other words, the seed and its effect, 
the implications of the word, the effect of that is lost. They fall away because of affliction or persecution. This soil represents the shallow heart. The second way a person can respond is with a shallow heart, the heart that feels quickly, receives it with great joy. The response is rapid, but here's the key thought, but they don't think it through deeply. They don't evaluate. This is the superficial heart, the feel-good heart, the emotional heart, the one that receives it with great joy. I'm going to argue it's the need-driven heart that is absent the depth of real commitment and conviction. There's a big response. There's a mirage of change. But they do not commit. They just want the promised benefit. There's the big change, and when they face real challenges, inward and outward, they crumble. They cave in, and their present choices contradict their previous claims. And listen, we've all seen folks like that. Some of us are like that. We get in the the ditch, we get in difficult spaces, and all of a sudden we become prayers and God pursuers. We've seen the person who's in desperate need, they come for help, they need deliverance, they need hope, they hear the word of the gospel, and immediately they decide to receive, decide to receive the benefit without counting the cost. And the real-life considerations of what it means to become a Christian. Listen, it is a gift, but it's a gift you receive without working implications. They don't consider that cost. And the real trials and temptations come when the emotion is passed and they wither and drift away. I'm going to call that they are temporary, not eternal. They evaporate. Has anybody seen Harry? He used to come. He used to be a part of the study. He used to be a part of the community of faith. But Harry's gone. No root because he's not been rooted in the truth by way of conviction and commitment. It's like those revivals. I was looking online today just out of curiosity. Remember the Asbury Revival? Six weeks. Then I went to Cedarville. Anybody hear anything about the Asbury Revival? You have. What have you heard? Yeah. So listen, obviously we don't have insight into the heart. Right? That's God's business. No man knows the heart. Nobody knows the spirit of a man except the spirit of God which is in him. But you can evaluate or at least assess something by the fruit of something. And Listen, I wasn't in Asbury. I wasn't at Cedarville. I wasn't in any of these events. All I can tell you is when I looked online today to find out some effect, I could find no effect, which is suggestive of the fact it's this, that kind of fast response, that experiential need. I'm not saying God didn't do anything for anyone because God does things even in the least likely spaces. 
but enduring is a is an expression of and a validation of true salvation. Listen to Luke chapter 8, verse 13. And those who are on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in a time of temptation, fall away. Let's talk temptation. Temptation is the challenges that are inward. The word literally means pressures. The pressures of inward temptation or the pressures of outward trial, consequences of believing, life hardships, when there's no way to escape, they evaporate. Rapid beginning, trouble comes, trials, pressures, temptations, old friends, old places, inward habits. It's like the person who makes the New Year's resolution or the person who buys the infomercial infomercial about how to look like you want to look. You buy those capsules. (laughs) You spend that money, but you don't continue because you're not committed. Turn with me to Luke chapter 14. One commentator says there are two troubles which cause this collapse. The fad or the phase and the inevitable loss when heat comes, pressure comes, temptation comes, persecution comes. One is the failure to think. One is the failure to think the thing out and think it through. The failure to realize what it means and what it costs before the start is made. The other is the fact that there are thousands of people who are attracted to Christianity, but who never let it get beyond the surface of their lives. Now listen to this commentator. The fact is that Christianity, with Christianity, it is a case of all or nothing. A man is safe only when he has given himself in total commitment to Christ, end quote. Jesus is talking to the crowds again in Luke chapter 14. This is a parallel parable in terms of this superficial versus deeply rooted conviction and commitment. Verse 25, Luke 14, large crowds were going along with Jesus. So we got a large crowd again. And he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me, okay, discipleship is salvation. My sheep hear my voice and they do what? They follow me. There is no, I'm saved and I'll be a disciple when I'm more committed. Discipleship and salvation are synonymous biblically. So when Jesus is talking about following him, he's talking about those who will be saved. My sheep hear my voice, and they do what? They follow me. There's no Christian who hears the voice that's saved who doesn't follow. That's one of the deceptions of the liars. And Jesus is going to clarify, large crowds were going along with him, and they said to him, if anyone... And he said to them, rather, 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This is a very emphatic way to say Jesus first over the most beloved, including your own passions and affections. It's me. Verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's Christ over my passions. It's Christ over my affections, even at cost or consequence. The cross, pain, suffering, loss. Now watch this. This is really why I pointed you here. Verse 28, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and do what? Calculate the cost, which is a way of saying, think this through. It's consequences and the cost of completion to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him. Think this through. Are you willing to build the tower? Do you have the convictions and the commitments commensurate with this endeavor? Consider the cost of completion. Notice what he goes on to say. Verse 30, this man began to build and was not able to finish, saying this man, that's what the ridicule was, verse 31 rather. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men, that's what he has, to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. You know what else you count? Consequences. Not just cost, but consequences. When you really recognize that the enemy king who's coming is not defeatable, the consequences drive you to make peace. Now let's apply that. Can you resist God and his judgment? The king who is opposed to you. You cannot. You don't have enough assets to stand against the king of everything. So a wise man would say, you know what? I'm going to seek peace with God and his justice and his judgment. I'm going to deal with the eminent consequences. To be an enemy of God makes you vulnerable to eternity without God. To stand in like they did in Psalm 2. We're going to resist God. We want to throw off his shackles. We don't want to submit to his authority. We want to do what we want to do. Well, you can, you can be rebellious, stubborn, and independent. But how's that going to work out for you? Yahweh laughs. I've installed my king. And my fury is sure. And the son says, I'm the king. And I have nation-shattering power. And the psalmist says in Psalm 2, here's the invitation. If you recognize who God is and the consequences of rebelling against him and his 
installed King of Kings, Jesus Christ, his son, Jesus says, you need to kiss the king. You need to worship and submit. Listen, Jesus is saying, follow me. But it's me over everything. It's me at the cost of everything. Count the cost and consider the consequences to ignore that call. And then he concludes in verse 33, so then, none of you, do you see that none of you? None of you. There are no exceptions and there are no exclusions in the multitude of potential followers. None of you can be my disciple who does not give up his own possessions. That's why it's blessed are the poor in heart. I'm so poor, I know I've got nothing. I want what he's offering. I'm all in. The soil of the soul that is vulnerable to the enemy is the soil that is not deep. It's not rooted. So I'm asking, is yours a committed faith or an emotional one? Is it fair sky faith? Or is it committed conviction? I put in my notes here, this is one of the reasons why I think it's dangerous to offer emotional appeals, because it's more than your emotions. It's your will. It's your mind. It's your heart. The soil that is hearing, but does not include commitment and conviction. Remember the hard sayings. It's a hard saying. The disciples just left. Number three, option three, thorny ground. I'm going to call this third option the double-minded and the deceived heart, thorny ground. Back in Mark's gospel, chapter four, and others are the ones on whom seed was sown, verse 18, among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, verse 19, but the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful, thorny ground. This was the ground that was full of thorns. This was the ground that was result, the result of a lazy farmer. This is the ground that looked suitable because the ground had been, the thorns, the, uh, the choking thorns had been cut off, often burned. The farmer would have cut off the top of the fibrous rooted weeds. He even burned off the top. The field would look clean. Don't think that we're talking about an overgrown, full of thorn field. Nobody would plant anything there. This is the farmer who cut it off at the surface or burned it so that it looked suitable. But because he didn't deal with the roots... Ultimately, he was not successful because the roots were still there. 
And over time, revived in all their strength, they grew with such rapidity and such strength that the Scripture says it choked off the seed of life. Let me put it this way. This is the person who wants to hang on to their sin. The weeds of the flesh, they want to hang on to it. They want to hang on to certain things. This is, I'm going to call this the deceived and unrepentant heart, the divided heart, maybe another way to say it. This is the heart that never really got rid of the thorns of the old life. It's cleaned up on the outside, but never changed on the inside. The thorns of the old life were not rooted out by confession and repentance. Listen, 1 Samuel chapter 7, the people of Israel lost the presence of God. They lamented 20 years. They were so sad because God's presence wasn't enjoyed by the people of Israel. So the prophet of God shows up, Samuel, and he says to the people of God, you want to enjoy the presence of God? Return to the Lord with all your heart. Remove the asterisk, the competitors to God. Root them out. That's the idols, the paraphernalia of sin. Destroy the high places where competitors to God are worshipped. You return to the Lord with all your heart. You remove the asterisk from among you. And you fix your heart on the Lord. And worship Him, listen to this, exclusively only. And then He'll deliver you from the Philistines. That's the secret That's the path. It involves repentance. The thorns of the old life removed. Listen, you can't hang on to the old life. The old people, the old places, the old patterns, the old habits, they are weeds and roots and thorns that will grow up and choke your life and the seed potential of the Word of God in your life. There's a third kind of soil. These are not saved people. These are people who are forfeiting salvation because of the competition. Let's talk the thorn varieties here in closing, three of them. Three thorn varieties, verse 19. There is noted here the thorn of the worries of the world. This is the thorn of the unhealthy belief that I have to give my time to my physical needs to the detriment of my spiritual needs in order to survive. Insecurity about my physical needs, worries, chokes my interest in time for spiritual things. This worry and concern dominate my decisions and my schedule. This is the person that is too busy working for their security to work for eternity. Number two, the second variety. This includes the worries of worldly loss and the thorn of the deceitfulness of riches. This is the thorn of materialism, an unhealthy belief that things and possessions can satisfy, sustain, and promote what matters to me. This thorn is a heart deceived with the lie that another thing, another dollar, Another acquisition, a bigger house, a nicer car, a cooler thing, more fashionable clothes, some kind of promotion, come some kind of, of prestigious elevation. 
the stuff of the world, that that is the means to my satisfaction. This thorn-filled lie chokes time and resources necessary to truly live and experience the abundance of eternal life. Thirdly, the desires for other things. Luke 8 says, the pleasures of this life. That's how he defines it. This is the thorn of worldly and fleshly passions. This is the general phrase referring to, hear me, all competitive interests that choke my desire for the things of God. Listen, some of us are into so many things, we don't have time for God. And people who hear the word but are distracted by the desire for other things, And that can be anything. Other things is anything. The point is, other things are more important than kingdom things. It could be academics. It could be some some position that you pursue or some notable place you attain. The The third response is a plant with no fruit. Do you see what it says, verse 19? Other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. No fruit. There is no spiritual fruit. There's no life fruit because there is no life. It has been suffocated. It has been choked off. Hebrews chapter 6, and I'll close just by reading it, is an inspired commentary on this kind of person potentially. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, this is chapter 6, verse 4 of the book of Hebrews, category of people, I think paralleling this, it's a sobering power parallel. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted, that word means sipped, the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. So they've experienced it. They've tasted it. They've been around it. The work of God, the legitimate work of God. And have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and they fall away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now listen to verse 7. For the ground, the soil, that drinks the rain, which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is tilled, receives a blessing from God. But, on the other hand, if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless, close to being cursed, because they've not died yet and have fully realized the outcome of their condition, and it ends up being burned. That's Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 8. I'm at the end of my time. So I will save the good soil to unpack that for you. But all three of these soils, whether it's on a shelf of rock and shallow, whether it's hard because it's walked on or because it's disinterested or because it hasn't dealt with the sin root system that competes with the things of God, there is no fruit. And what you're going to see in the fourth soil is there must be fruit. 
Or you know what there is? No true salvation. So when you say, I'm a Christian, I'm saying, who told you? Because it is possible to deceive yourself. And that is the greatest tragedy of all. Can you say amen to that? So this is sobering. I get it. But we live in a world where it's populated maybe less so today than in the past. And when I was living in the South, it was hard to find somebody who's not a Christian. There's more of non-Christians in the South than ever before. Everybody's not making that claim because culturally it's not as attractive or interesting. But there are still people who claim it, who do not have it. And this is the reason why they don't have it. Father, thank you for the time today. Your word, it's sobering, it's foundational, it's critical. And it's my prayer that by your spirit, you will bring conviction where it's needed, repentance and change for the glory of God and the salvation of the one who is in jeopardy today. And then for those of us who know you, undeniably know you, Will you help us to be alert to and educated by the obstacles to true salvation? And Lord, we just need to be faithful to sow it. And we ask you to use us to plow soil, to prepare hearts, and to model the truth that saves. That's my prayer, and I ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Happy Sunday. Have a good morning.